Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Nice to have you back with us for another episode. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. As you hear this, if you hear it the moment it's published, anyway, I am at the Blind Citizens New Zealand 2016 conference. And Blind Citizens New Zealand is the consumer organisation of blind people in New Zealand. Of course, there are other consumer organisations that deal with specific elements of blindness but Blind Citizens New Zealand is the oldest I think consumer organization in New Zealand's disability sector. It was founded in 1945 and it's the only organization where all you have to be is blind or vision impaired to join. It's had a very successful history and hopefully we may come back with some presentations and or interviews to use in subsequent editions of the Blind Side podcast. If you're particularly interested in this and you are listening before mid-Sunday afternoon New Zealand time, which is Saturday night Eastern US time, then Mushroom FM is streaming the Blind Citizens New Zealand 2016 conference. And you can find that by going to mushroomfm.com slash extra. That's mushroomfm.com slash E-X-T-R-A. You will find the stream there for the Blind Citizens New Zealand 2016 event when it is live. So you can check it out for yourself and tune into the conference in real time. Of course, it is on a much smaller scale than, say, what you would find in the United States because New Zealand is a population of just 4.1 million people. And so the blind population is very much smaller. So a much more intimate kind of proceedings and what you would be used to if you have heard the US blindness conferences. Hope you enjoy it. Well, it won't come as any surprise to you to know that I'm going to die. I mean, we're all going to die. We don't know when, most of us anyway, but we are going to die. And with that in mind, Bonnie and I have been updating our wills this week. It's been a process that's taken some time, actually, while we get things sorted out, a few drafts. And it raised an issue for me that I thought I would raise here on the podcast and possibly get your feedback. If you have any feedback on this and you want to share your own experiences, you can, of course, drop me an email or you can attach an audio file to the email if you prefer to let your voice be heard, which is fun. We get to hear what you sound like. And that's good, particularly on a blindness related podcast, I think. The email address is the blind side, all joined together, the blind side at mosen.org. The blind side at mosen.org. So here's the deal. We've been working on these wills for a while, and there have been several drafts of the will that we got the lawyer who we engaged to prepare for us. And the lawyer sent us various versions, some of which had typos, some of which needed amending or adding to. It's the normal kind of drafting process. And we played a very active part in that drafting process. He would send us the documents. They were in Word format, so it was no problem for us to open the Word documents and read them. And we could use track changes and all of those sorts of techniques to mark up areas where there needed to be additions, corrections, changes in spelling. They misspelled our address and a whole bunch of things like that. So we were very much active as part of this process. And earlier this week... We went to the lawyer's office to officially sign them off. We had read the final version. I emailed the lawyer and I said, email me the final versions of these documents. We'll make sure we read them ahead of time. Well, when we got to the lawyer's office, the lawyer insisted on having someone else present 
and then having each document, which, you know, is reasonably lengthy, actually, read out to us. Now, you know, the lawyer's clock is ticking, right? Tick, tick, tick. The billable hours are adding up. And the lawyer's clock is ticking while they insist that they have to read to us the documents. So there's the will documents. There are a couple of other ones associated with the will documents. It probably took about 30 to 35 minutes of reading time. And then we had to sign the document off. And they inserted a clause at the bottom of the wills, which said he slash she, depending on whether it's my will or Bonnie's will that we're talking about, being blind, this document was read out in their presence and they understood the document essentially. So the assumption with this process appears to be that blind people are illiterate and they can't read the document for themselves. And sometimes you have to fight your battles, don't you? Sometimes you sort of think, do I let this go or is there a point here? And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not going to let this one go. I'm at least going to flag it as an issue. I'm not going to sort of storm out of the of the lawyer's office and refuse to sign the, the, the documents. But it just seems to me that this is a very antiquated way to conduct business these days. And I said, we've actually corrected your typos. We've corrected your errors of fact. We've been active in this process. And to require us to sign a document that says this had to be read out because we're blind does not reflect the nature of the capabilities of blind people in 2016. And I said, it's patronizing and unnecessary and actually quite offensive, really. Now, when I raised this with other people after this came up, some of them have said, well, of course, they have to verify that the document that you are signing is the same one that you read. Now, even in my mind, this isn't actually a barrier and this shouldn't require a clause that says you're a blind person and this has to be read to you because I had my iPhone in my pocket. I also have KNFB Reader on my Android phone as well. So I could whip out either one and I could take a picture in the lawyer's office of the document and quickly have the speech read it myself. It would be far quicker than, than them reading it, which was actually quite a halting, stumbling business, to be honest. And I could verify that, yes, the document in front of me on the physical piece of paper that I am about to sign is the same as the document that I read at home and tweaked and amended. There'd be no problem. And when I raised this with the lawyer, who I'm not faulting, I think the lawyer is, is just trying to be cautious. And as someone also said to me, it's better to have a thorough lawyer than a gung-ho lawyer. And I suppose I do accept that. But when I pointed this out to the lawyer, he said, well, if the will is contested in future, I need to get up in front of a judge and assure him that he slash she knew what they were signing. And that seems extraordinary to me that a judge would not be able to be convinced that just because you're blind, it doesn't mean that you can't read your own documentation for yourself and sign it off in absolute confidence that what you are reading is the documentation that you thought you were reading and signing. So I would be interested in any experience that you have had with the legal profession in this regard, and what it's like where you are. 
Now, I'm not sure whether the experience that I've had here in New Zealand is consistent with the way every lawyer does things in New Zealand. And I'm actually trying to find out whether there's some sort of legislative requirement or something in the code of practice of the law society here in New Zealand that says that this sort of thing has to go on. But if that is the case, then I'm going to work very hard to get it changed. Uh, I've had these sorts of issues with the legal profession before. I spent quite a few years actually advocating, finally successfully, to delete a clause from the Juries Act in New Zealand, which prohibited people from serving on a jury automatically because of blindness. Now, obviously, lawyers, when they get a pool of jurors from which to choose, or potential jurors, they can challenge without cause. And you don't know whether you're being challenged because of your blindness or where it looks like you're coming from in terms of your socio-demographic background and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. You never know. But there should not be a blanket ban on jury duty just because you're a blind person, and we finally got that lifted. So I have taken on the legal profession (laughs) before on issues like this, and I'm happy to do so again. It would be really great to hear if you've had similar experiences around the world. Now, while there are, of course, exceptions to every rule, and it's always dangerous to generalize, I have to say that the two professions I have had the most difficulty with in my life are medical professionals and legal professionals who seem to have a very limiting or limited view of the capabilities of blind people. Medical professionals, I think, because they see blindness as some sort of defect and they don't look at the way that people can adjust to blindness. And I guess that comes back in some respects to what we were talking about in last week's edition of The Blind Side with the How I See It campaign. I actually spent some time in hospital with issues relating to my ears a few years ago. It was about 13 years ago, and I was in this hospital, and the nurse came along. I was lying in my hospital bed, and they were trying all sorts of things to see whether drugs could quickly reverse sudden bouts of hearing loss, you see. So I I had this intravenous drip, and I was uh, lying in bed. Next thing I know, there are these big guardrails that I'm surrounded by, these sort of high railings. And I'm <laughs> I say, what are these there for then? What are these there for? And they said, well, we're, we're just concerned that you might fall out of bed, so we're putting these rails up. And I'm saying, goodness gracious me. <laughs> it, it, there's nothing like these sorts of experiences to make you feel like we've got a long, long way to go. You know, you can be successful in your profession. You can have a family. You can just do your own thing in your community as people do every day. And then somebody comes along and treats you like you're completely incompetent. So needless to say, we got those rails removed pretty quickly. But there are countless examples like that uh, in the medical profession that I have encountered. And that's not to say that it's universal, but in my experience, it is common. So, Let me know your thoughts. The email address once again, and you can attach an audio file or just write me something, theblindside at mosin.org if you want to be in touch, theblindside at mosin.org. Now, we have a couple of items that have been sent to that email address by way of feedback, so let's get to them. Now, I have some more information pertaining to the podcast we did a couple of episodes ago. This was in episode six when we looked at Blind Square and the exciting trial of the Blind Square Beacons that's taking place right here in my home city, Wellington, this uh, beautiful capital of New Zealand. 
And so here's some more things that I have been provided with, some more facts that we have about that blind square trail and blind square beacons in general. Now, the radius of the blind square events for the Wellington area is 20 kilometers around Wellington, and that's not going to expire. So with this blind square beacon system in Wellington, anybody within the Wellington area can get the blind square event app from the App Store and they'll be able to continue to use that indefinitely as the Blind Square beacons are available in Wellington. So that's excellent news. Now, this Wellington project is very much a test of the technology in a real-world environment, and it sets out to define what benefits can be found with a single beacon per location. Blind Square, though, has a highly refined method of providing indoor navigation beyond the front doors, it provides detailed information as the person continues their journey indoors. The full beacon positioning system, or BPS as it's known for short, will provide alerts at key locations such as elevators, stairways, escalators, ramps, decision points such as intersections of hallways and the like. It will further support travel information by indicating floors when disembarking elevators or escalators, for example, even if the lifts don't provide that information themselves. If the lifts don't talk, blind square beacons can help you out. The Wellington Project is an intentional reduction to demonstrate the immensity of the problem and the simplicity of the solution. So that's useful information. It means that if beacons were positioned all over the place, then you'd be able to get an even richer experience than the very impressive one that is already being provided in Wellington as part of this trial. Blind Square does have a policy that the information provided is very much non-commercial and navigational informational in nature. So we appreciate that additional information. More email coming in. There's been quite a bit this week, but one more I would like to mention has come from Louise Redsell. Now, Louise has written a very thought-provoking blog post inspired by last week's podcast when we discussed the Foundation Fighting Blindness's campaign called How I See It. And there's been a lot of Twitter chatter about this since the Blindside podcast and indeed before it, in fact. Louise writes really well. It's great to see blind people using these platforms to express themselves and to encourage respectful and thoughtful debates in our community. If you'd like to read Louise's post, not just on this, but other things she's done, including the grooviness of diving and all sorts of things like that, you can visit her website. And it is at www.blindsightseer.com. That's www.blindsightseer.com. Dot com and have a read of what she has to say. We do have people to talk to in the Blind Side podcast this week. We're going to be speaking in a moment to Eric Miller of the Rush Miller Foundation, and he's going to be talking to us about a really cool initiative that was inspired by his son, where the Rush Miller Foundation gives for free tandem bicycles around the world. We'll also then look at another option that's tackling this question of navigation, effective navigation for blind people. You might think of this as neon signs for blind people. This is an app called Otua, and it's been developed by McGill University. We'll be talking with someone who's behind that project, who's overseeing it anyway. That'll be coming up a bit later here on the Blind Side podcast. Mm-hmm. 
Are you fascinated by unusual music or sounds? Or maybe you'd just like to hear something different for a change. This is Tom Decker, a.k.a. The Wolfman, eager to share with you a diverse musical collection that I've been sniffing out over many years. From every genre, anytime, and anywhere, I've got something for anyone. So, have a listen, get background info, and join the discussion. It's as easy as sending an email to tom at mushroomfm.com or following Wolfman Tom, that's W-O-O-F Man Tom, on Twitter, including the Mushroom FM hashtag, of course. Join me for Wolfman's World Music, Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern, here on the home of the fun guys, Mushroom FM. Our place, our issues, the blind side. With Jonathan Mosen. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy, all for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage, I can't afford a carriage, but you'll. bicycle built for two it's a great way to travel especially if you're a blind person and you need to get up and about and do a bit of exercise and keep yourself fit and there's an organization that is committed to providing tandem bicycles to blind people so they can do just that it's a great initiative and when i heard about it i thought we must talk to eric miller of the rush miller foundation and find out more about it so eric welcome to the blind side it's really good to have you here well thanks for having me i was excited when you found me how did this get started? How did you get the inspiration for it? Well, back, uh, it was June 23rd of 2000. My uh, then five-year-old son, Garrett, uh, was diagnosed with a, a malignant brain tumor and immediately went to surgery up in Denver, Colorado uh, the next day. And two weeks later, we found out that he was blind from the surgery. And And Garrett's profoundly visually impaired. He's not uh, totally blind, but, um, and Garrett had this really great, robust, gregarious personality. And, and after several months in the hospital, I remember him coming home and just sitting around the house. He wouldn't go out with the neighbor kid and wouldn't go out and play. And, and then he says to his mom, you know, mom, I'm forgetting what things look like. And, you know, my heart was broken. You know, here's this kid that used to go out and play, and now all of a sudden, he, it's like his life was taken away from him. And it was on, um, it was, gosh, when was it? It was in the fall of that year of 2000. The national track championships were in Colorado Springs, Colorado, in the Velodrome. And there was an article about a Paralympic athlete um, who was blind named Matt King. And I called Matt, and he invited us out to the velodrome for the race. And I was telling Garrett, I said, hey, you know, there's these bikes. They're called tandems. They have two seats, and you get to ride around, and so you can at least ride a bike again. He's like, okay. But I, I he, he couldn't understand the whole concept. He, he's like, Dad, how does the blind guy sit on the bike, um, balance, 
steer and use the cane. He th- he thought <laughs> you sat in the front and still had to use the cane. And I remember, that's a pretty cool idea. Actually, I should try that sometime. <laughs> well, I, now uh, we can talk about having um, totally blind individuals on the front of the mm-hmm. tandem, mm-hmm. and then you verbally tell them where to go because I've done that many times. Um, and it's it's actually a whole nother thrill, but that's maybe another podcast of adventures <laughs> like that. Right. But so I, I just remember Garrett the first time he saw the tandem with his hands, and he he um, grabbed the front handlebars, and then he went down the top tube to the first seat, and then he went and he could feel the handlebars, you know, connected to the seat post of the first seat. Went down that second top post, and then boom, he. See, you know, with his hands, that second seat, and I, it was a light switch. All of a sudden, um, he was back, and we decided we'd buy a tandem, uh, except they're expensive. And we had a bunch of people donate money, and a corporation put up half the money, and we ended up getting Garrett a tandem bicycle. And from there, it just mushroomed and i think that was december 3rd of 2000 garrett got his tandem and then we started the foundation in february of 2001 because we realized that man if this had this effect on garrett it could have the effect on a lot of other kids too it's impressive that you did that though because you could have left it at that and you could have thought well it had an impact on derek and that's great your family's happy but you took it that next step and you thought i'd like to share this experience with a lot of other people yeah, I, I yeah, I guess for for me it was also therapeutic. You know, you're 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 left with this. Um, you know, he had six weeks of radiation, sixty four weeks of chemo, and then two years of relearning to walk, talk, and everything else again. And so it really provided um, uh, out outlet for me to do something positive because it was it was really overwhelming emotionally frankly right how did it come about did it was it a kind of an accidental thing that because you got all these donations you decided to take it into a, a charitable organization or did you make a conscious decision we're going to start a foundation yeah, you know, I think that probably was it that when everybody donated to Garrett's bike I thought well you know, we could just donate to other people's bikes. And I remember interviewing a lot of different people that had 501c3s in the U.S. It's nonprofits, the IRS, uh, the Internal Revenue S- uh, Services designation is 501c3. So, you know, before I started a nonprofit, I interviewed a lot of people. And the advice that everyone gave me is don't start a nonprofit. It's miserable. <laughs> You know, it's it's no fun running a nonprofit, and and so um, I interviewed a lot of people, looked for organizations doing something similar that maybe we could piggyback onto, or I could fundraise for, and there just wasn't anything available, and so that's that's why we ultimately ended up going the the nonprofit route. Um, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't something I necessarily really wanted to do that I had a burning desire to start a nonprofit, but it just ended up that way after trying to find another outlet that we could just help out to do that. And what's the role of the foundation now in 2016? How many bikes are you supplying and who are you supplying them to? So fortunately, we're tiny, teeny tiny. You're, you're, me and our very small, tightly held board 
are it. We don't have any um, paid employees. And we're fortunate, though, that we've been able to partner with other large organizations that, um, uh, you know, we tack on to. But because we don't have any paid employees, we don't need a big budget. So basically, our money comes in and goes right back out. Through an initiative in the U.S., we're um, putting two tandem bicycles in every school for the blind. There's 50 states, but not every state has a school. I think there's 44 um, or somewhere in the mid-40s uh, schools in the U.S., and we've given away bikes in 26 of them or 27 of them. So we've got a few left, and through that, um, we figure 2,400 kids have probably ridden bikes because of the Rush Miller Foundation. And then we've also given away, I don't know, 200. I, I, I haven't really kept track of all the numbers. It, we're 15 years into it. Um, but it's somewhere between 150 and 200 tandems that we've given to individual families. And we've given bikes away in 43 states and eight countries. So, What's the price of a tandem these days? Oh my gosh! Well, I mean, you can if you want to if you want the full suspension uh, uh, mountain bike tandem, they're about eight to ten thousand dollars U.S. Uh, the tandems that we get, you can get tandems for probably three hundred dollars, um, but they're the components are not very good. They fall out of they they are in disrepair more than they're in repair. So we try to get a good, solid entry level tandem. We use KHS or Cannondale tandems, and they start in the price, the retail price of them are $1,500, up to $3,000. And we've got significant, we've got the best dealership prices on all of them, so we obviously don't pay that. Yeah, so you're, you're buying was, a bunch of them, so you get a bit of a, a break there, right. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and our, I think our biggest year we bought – 30 or 40 tandems and then we probably average five or six tandems a year under a normal year because we don't advertise you know we uh, i've had the national federation of the blind and and some parent organizations asked to promote us and i just asked them to please not because i don't want to um become a casualty of our own success because then it does become a full-time job. Then I do have to hire somebody, and it and it takes that from that labor of love into a real chore. And the great thing about the foundation now is is we get people that really want a tandem. They find us some way through the internet, um, and when they're getting in touch with us, they're people that are going to ride and use the tandem, not just looking for you know, something that they can tell their friends that they got this bike, but it never gets used. What sort of feedback do you receive from the kids who get these tandems in terms of the impacts that it's had on them, the difference that it makes? Oh my gosh. Well, it's just like Garrett. A lot of them, uh, it, it becomes this conduit to a whole nother life. You know, I remember when I got my first bike, it was the first time I was able to get away from my parents. I could right down the street outside of, you know, where they knew I was. It was this, this whole element of freedom that I had never experienced. The bike became a fire truck or a a jet airplane or, you know, whatever it was. And, and so the bike is, is really not just a hunk of metal. It's really a profound 
piece of equipment that that opens the mind to other possibilities and and for a blind or visually impaired kid who all of a sudden thinks well now i'm blind i can't do this i can't do that and a Oftentimes riding a bike is one of those things that they can't, but then all of a sudden with some adaptations, they can have this freedom of riding a bike. I mean that, so how does that translate into their life that, well, if I can do this, then I can do some other things, but maybe I just need some adaptations. And we've got all kinds of great stories. And, and when we give them, to, give uh, the tandems to the schools for the blind, oh my gosh, I get tons of letters and a lot of times in braille and then of course they they translate the braille for me but uh, i mean just all kinds of fun we've got videos of kids first time i we just gave away two to the ohio school for the blind and the majority of kids that rode that day had never been on a bike and some of them were teenagers and just the thrill there's Oh my gosh, that's that's what makes a makes a nonprofit worth it is when you get to go out and and watch the the final outcome of what you're you're really wanting to do and and we've got a couple of um, we've got one uh, recipient that's going to the Paralympics this year and he uh, uh, is playing goalball, which is um, for those that are blind or visually impaired should know what goalball is. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Uh, um, very fun game. My son loves goalball. I've played it a few times, but once you take that ball to the face or other areas of your body a few times, coming at you at 25 miles an hour plus, um, you know, it, it yeah. is not a game for sissies. No, no, all. it isn't. It, it isn't for the faint of heart, the old goalball. <laughs> I am really surprised. And actually, there are a few universities now that um, sighted people are starting to play it. And it is such a great game anyway. So Matt Simpson uh, received a tandem from us years ago and did triathlons with his friends and things on it. And he is going to Rio with the Paralympics. In fact, it it was funny. The first time I met Matt, um, we were at a goalball tournament and, and he says, Hey, Eric, uh, did you know you gave me a tandem? <laughs> and I didn't even know. I'm like, no, <laughs> had no idea. He goes, yeah. And and he just started talking about how much fun he has had on that bike and still uses it. And here in, in Pueblo, Colorado, where I'm located, we gave away one bike to a young man here in town. And I was just driving one night, I don't know, probably two years ago. And I see this tandem go screaming by. And it was, it was this, uh, this boy that we had given a bike to, he's still riding it probably, I don't know, 10, 12 years later. So that that's the one reason that we buy nicer bikes is because we know they'll, they'll still be around years down the road. So it's been yeah. fun. It's, it's great. You know, and I know that every parent wants their kids to get off the computer for a bit and get outside and get some fresh air and get some exercise. But I actually think that for blind kids, it's even more complex because sometimes it's hard for blind kids to find a lot of physical activity, really. And um, and parents have a concern about that. So the whole tandem thing is great in this era where we are concerned about our kids' health and making sure that they're getting the exercise they need. Well, I, I I think you're right on there. That's exactly right. And in a time where, you, you know, social media is so interesting in that people want to be this hyper-connected yet, but we're not connected anymore, right? It's all virtual. And the tandem, in fact, I think everybody should have a tandem. All families should have a tandem, right? Because it, it forces you to have one-on-one interaction, 
yeah. when you're riding around together. It's you know? funny you it's, say that because when my wife was reading about the article and I was talking to her about having a talk to you and, and I'm blind and she's blind and she said, you know, we should get a tandem. And I'm thinking, which one of us is going to be on the front of this thing? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, I can tell you, uh, Matt King, um, and he's very interesting. You, he's uh, on our board of advisors and is, was the inspiration for our nonprofit. He is actually the AI guy, the artificial intelligence and and um, interface person at Facebook now. He's yes. been on yep. CNN and and all kinds of different news outlets because he's really doing some incredible uh, things with technology for the blind, and he's totally blind. Um, but yeah, he he asked me one time, "Hey, look, Eric, I have not ridden on the front of a bike in years. Do you mind?" If I ride in the front, you just tell me where to go. And and keep in mind, this is a Paralympic athlete. So his thighs are as big as my waist. I mean, he is a monster when it comes to the bike. Oh my God. We got on the, I got on the back of the thing and boom, we were gone and he is hauling. <laughs> it was, it was a thrill and he was having so much fun. And I'm like, left, right, watch it, watch it. Oh man. So Hold it, on to your hat. You know, we may well get a few responses from listeners about this, but when I was a kid, there were other blind kids that I knew who would get on the bike, and I suppose they were different times there. They'd get on the bike, and they would cruise around their neighborhoods as totally blind kids, and they would use echolocation, you know, just making sort of clicking sounds with your tongue or your fingers or whatever to know where obstacles were, and the bike would make um, sufficient noise that you could avoid obstacles because of echolocation. So there were probably a number of people listening to the podcast who actually have done that and hooned around on a bike (laughs) well there's a guy in california that's really perfected that i just read a big article um on him in some magazine and he has really taken that to the next step and i think they even use like cards uh flicking in the um the spokes and they go mountain biking they have some sighted person that they'll do single track mountain biking where with totally blind individuals on just normal bikes and they just echolocate the whole, whole time. Yeah. And so, you, you know, if you're going to have any kind of physical impairment, we are in a great time uh, in history that adaptations and things are really leveling the playing field, not only academically and and in workplaces, but also recreationally to where a lot of exciting things are happening. And, you know, my hope is that all we do is put kids on bikes. That's it. I'm not trying to solve world hunger or peace or anything. All we want to do is put blind, visually impaired kids on bikes and I think that that recreation really has an opportunity, though, to make other big changes in their lives. And and we've seen it happen. Um, you know, I look at Matt Simpson and some other kids that have really gone on to accomplish some really great things. Not just because of our bike, of course, but I, we hope that it has a part in it, for sure. I just think it's fantastic that you took this terribly difficult, challenging experience as a parent, you know, and as a parent myself, I understand uh, what a what a trial it must have been to go through what you all went through. And then you've sort of turned these lemons into lemonade and provide so, so much assistance to other people. It's a great story. And I really appreciate you uh, sharing it on the podcast with us. It's It's been a real pleasure. 
Well, I, I mean, it's it's a thrill, and isn't it a great time that we live in that somebody in New Zealand can find some, you know, goofball in Colorado <laughs> that, that came up with this idea, and that we can now, through Skype, have this interview that's now going to, you know, potentially be heard by people around the world. It's really a, a great time in history to be alive. And yeah, yeah it absolutely is, you know, and, and sometimes we take it for granted, but it's nice to step back in that way sometimes and look at it and think, wow, you know, this is pretty cool, all the stuff we can do now. Right, right. And I'll tell you, um, even more exciting is years ago, probably 25 years ago, I had a dream about a bike. I've only dreamed about two bikes. One is a, um, uh, um, not cross country. What is that? Um, anyway, I can't think of it offhand, but the other dream that I had was riding a tandem through New Zealand. So I think that maybe we should fundraise for some bikes, uh, for the school in New Zealand. And I should come down and personally, um, present them and then ride through New Zealand with yeah. you guys. You, you would be very welcome and, and look us up and I know just the person to put you in touch with in terms of the school here in New Zealand. So, <laughs> uh, Fantastic. But, yeah, that'd be good. Fantastic. Uh, th thanks for joining us on the podcast, Eric. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Our next guest, Jeremy Cooperstock, is not too far away, but actually it's been another exciting week at Mosin Towers, other than the Will thing that I talked about earlier, because we've got some new toys. We've finally completed, I think, our Sonos system. It's been my goal to have Sonos in every room that we live and sleep. And we got three new Sonos devices now so that all the bedrooms have Sonos devices now. We've had a 5.1 Sonos system in the living room for a while. We've had one in the master bedroom. We've had one in the dining room. We love the Sonos stuff. It is a wonderful, elegant system. The app for iOS is very accessible. The PC one's pretty good too. The Mac, not so much. And I suppose the Android one is sort of doable. But certainly if you're an iOS or PC user, you'll love Sonos. If you'd like to learn about it, because investing in Sonos is a significant commitment of finances and I guess committing to an ecosystem as well, you might want to invest just a fraction in finding out what Sonos can do for you and whether it would suit you. You'll learn the basics of Sonos and the various apps for the platform, as well as learning about how to work with external devices and other technologies like AirPlay and Chromecast, some advanced stuff there. It's all covered in the Mosin Consulting book called Sonosthesia. It's uh, $24.95 from the Mosin Consulting store. And if you'd like to pick it up, you can go to mosen.org slash Sonos. That's M-O-S-E-N dot org slash Sonos. If you go to that page, you can read a full description of the table of contents, all of the things that are covered in Sonosthesia. And if it intrigues you and you'd like to learn about this amazing audio platform, you can download the book right after purchasing. You can pay with any major credit card. And if you have PayPal, you can pay with your PayPal account as well. There are other products in the Mosin Consulting Store as well you might want to check out, but do check out Sonosthesia. If you love your audio and you want it sounding as pristine and fantastic as it can be and have access to all of the digital services you subscribe to as well as your own music library, then check it out. Mosin.org slash Sonos. S-O-N-O-S. And now, stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. 
Neon Signs for the Blind. Well, that's what a new app called Otour is promising. It is a Canadian app and available in limited use in Canada at the moment. To tell me about this app, because it's got some quite intriguing functions and qualities, I'm joined by one of its developers, Jeremy Cooperstock in Canada. It's great to talk with you. Thank you for coming on the Blindside podcast today. Likewise. Thanks for having me on, Jonathan. I, I first just want to correct uh, your statement. I'm actually not one of the developers. I'm the professor who supervises and leads the project, but I have a team of great people who have been working on it over the last seven years who really are the developers and deserve the credit for having done so. Ah, so they do the real work. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just uh, sit, sit around and look at them all day long. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. How did this app come into being? Obviously, if you've had a seven-year period of gestation with this app, it's been a, a long-term project for you. Absolutely. Yeah. So we started this work, uh, as I said, back in 2009, and it came about following our, our research that we've been conducting for several years prior to that, uh, working with multimodal interaction and in particular spatialized audio. So we've been very interested in my, in my research in terms of looking at the different ways that uh, our sensory systems, whether they're visual or auditory or our haptic, that's our sense of touch, can be engaged and affected by technology, how we can create these very rich and immersive experiences for users. And in terms of the work we were doing with audio, we've been looking at leveraging the uh, value and the, the uh, evocative power of binaural spatial audios. The idea that as you hear sound through your two ears in the physical everyday world, you're viscerally aware of where those sounds are coming from and how far away they are from you. And that's based on the way that the brain processes the signals in terms of the time difference and the amplitude differences they arrive at your two ears. So we've been carrying out numerous projects involving that capability uh, some for artistic purposes, some for uh, sort of immersive uh, simulation experiences. And we started thinking about where that work could lead uh, in terms of more practical everyday applications and who could benefit from it. And that naturally turned us to thinking about the uh, visually impaired community, uh, where you have users who obviously use their ears as the sighted population does their eyes. The whole binaural thing is a very interesting area. As somebody who's been involved in audio and podcasting for a very long time, you know, I've had a, a, a play with the binaural microphones that you can purchase. If you make a good quality binaural recording and the microphones are positioned correctly and you play that back on headphones, it really does sound like you are in the environment that you recorded. It can be quite eerie, actually. So in essence, you're taking those binaural concepts and saying, well, we can use this technology to give location positioning information, not just what's around you necessarily, but specifically where in relation to the way that you are facing it's around you. That's absolutely correct. I mean, you talk about the, the sort of power of it and how, how rich it is. I mean, I recall the first time that I listened to a, a binaural playback in a lab where I was a graduate student. And I was just mesmerized. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, work, I work so much with, with visual media, but when I heard this, just kind of closing my eyes or even with my eyes open and hearing the voices of people that had been recorded and then looking at them and wondering, why, did, why are their lips moving now? I'm, I'm looking at them, I'm, I'm seeing them, I'm hearing them, but, but they're not talking, but I'm hearing them. What's yeah. <laughs> going on? It, it's incredibly powerful. 
And, uh, and, and as we started the project and, and we started working with members of Montreal's blind community and we went for walks with them and, and observed how it was that they used sound to uh, make judgments about what kind of a street they're walking on, uh, being able to determine they just passed a bus shelter because of the way the audio environment was affected by that obstacle along the street. It became readily apparent to us that the visually impaired community has this incredibly heightened sense of awareness of the world from sound. And it was just such a perfect fit with the research we've been doing. We said, we've got to take advantage of this. We've got to make use of this, this capability of representing positions of objects, positions of, of points of interest around the user, taking advantage of, uh, of spatial audio in that manner. If you started this project in 2009, then the game has changed a lot since then because that was the year that voiceover first became available in the iPhone. And of course, there are a lot of these apps now that are seeking to provide blind people with information about their surroundings. But you obviously feel that you have a niche here that is not being covered elsewhere. I, I very much think so. So the, the two uh, systems that have come about, I mean, one I think that was starting around the same time as ours, and then another one that came along more recently were Ariadne GPS, and then more recently Blind Square. And we've certainly been, been happy to see those apps come about, and, they, and we realize that they've been providing a great service to those who are using them. But O'Toole was designed from the very beginning with a different sort of philosophy. Um, the first being, of course, the leveraging of spatial audio that we've discussed already, which is something that none of the other systems were aware of, uh, try to provide for the users. And that itself allows for a much uh, more compact representation of information because you don't have to spend your time saying uh, this is an object or a place of interest that is 30 degrees to your left. You just hear it announced 30 degrees to your left based on the way your ears pick it up. And the other significant difference is that O'Toole was designed to be something uh, that really looks at the way of interaction, the way in which a user accesses the information and makes use of the app without feeling like they're having to make a lot of manipulations using the voiceover menuing system. And while I'm blown away by the speed and efficiency with which blind users can, can navigate through voiceover prompts and, and menus, I think it's faster than I can, as a sighted user, uh, navigate through the menus. Uh, it still seems that when you have one hand occupied holding a cane or uh, holding the leash for your guide dog, uh, and you need another hand free to interact with objects, having to start manipulating the phone all the time to get information seems to be cumbersome. And O'Toole was designed in a manner where you can derive all of the benefits of the app without hardly ever needing to touch the phone. And that, I think, is a very fundamental difference in the way in which the design philosophy shaped the development of the of the overall system. If I'm walking down the street then, and I know that there is a coffee shop somewhere in the vicinity, let's say it's, it's on my left, does that mean that I'll hear when I'm wearing headphones, and I know you recommend the bone conduction headphones so that your ears aren't covered and you're able to hear the environment, that means presumably that I will hear more on my left-hand side about the coffee shop, but that when I turn to face the coffee shop, it will start to sound more centered when it gives me instructions about it. Is that how it works? That's correct. So it doesn't actually give you instructions about the coffee shop or even a lot of details about it. 
it will only announce the category using the spatialized sound, and then it'll give you its name through both headphones equally. So that'll be a monaural playback of the name. So let's say it's a Starbucks uh, coffee shop. As you're walking down the street and you're in what we call the radar mode, and the, the radar mode is, is probably the most common mode users will be uh, uh, running O2 with, um, that plays a continuous radar sweep around the user's head. And it takes, depending on how many points of interest or, or places are nearby the user, it could take anywhere from about 15 to 20 seconds to complete a, a, a regular sweep. Um, so if you're moving slowly, walking down, sort of coming towards that coffee shop, as the radar suite passes the coffee shop, you'll hear it announced. You'll hear a coffee shop or, sorry, restaurant perhaps um, as the category, and you'll hear that announced from the correct orientation. And then you'll hear the name Starbucks coffee shop, and that will just come through both ears. And the users we work with said that that was actually very helpful because sometimes with a lot of background distracting noise, they might miss the name of it if it's only spatialized. So they appreciated the distinction between the spatialized category name and then the, uh, the detail or the, the, the actual description, Starbucks coffee shop coming through both ears. But that means in, in terms of the radar sweep that they have to wait for the sweep to reach that point. And of course, if, they, if they've already passed it, then they're going to be hearing it coming from a little bit behind them. So that's the, the radar sweep. But the mode that perhaps is more interesting for really finding where that shop is, is what we call the beam mode, which is more like a flashlight. And to, to exercise that functionality, the user then has to tip the phone so that it is facing the sky. So the sort of normal flat orientation as you would when you're, when you're manipulating your phone. And then you point the phone as you face a direction of interest to you. And you're basically illuminating with that flashlight all of the points of interest that are along that sort of ray. And, if, and as you steer around, you can find, you can in a, sense, in a sense, locate where the coffee shop is, provided it's within the sort of distance threshold uh, of right now it's quoted, I think, at 70 meters or about 200 feet, 200 feet for, for those in the States. Uh, and it will, it will then announce those points of interest in that direction. There are some wonderful restaurants in Montreal. So I think if I were finding myself back there again, I'd be looking for those and not the coffee shops. With all due respect to Starbucks, <laughs> just too many good choices in Montreal to eat. Now, you've got it up and running in Montreal, and that's the scope right now. Is that right? No, we started in Montreal and we were limiting the testing and the support for it in terms of what database contents uh, were, were uh, included in our server uh, for the first few years only to Montreal. But as of uh, a couple of weeks ago, we've now uh, announced the added support for all the major centers across Canada, all the, the main cities. And O'Toole will actually run anywhere in the world but it will not provide the added information of public transit data or intersection data uh, for other cities. That's something that we're planning to add in the next few months once we complete a little bit more testing uh, across Canada. So we are certainly hoping to make it available uh, around the world in other big centers uh, starting uh, as early as the fall. All right. So you're using some sort of publicly available database like Google Maps or some sort of technology like that that allows you to roll it out pretty readily around the place. Right. So the Google Places API, as well as that from Foursquare, uh, already are, you know, are supported everywhere around the world. 
because that's not something that we have to import. That's something that we make a live query to from our server. But the intersection data comes from OpenStreetMap. And while that's publicly available, we have to import it to make use of it. And we, because of uh, server imitations and, and our need to scale up gradually, we've so far only imported uh, residential areas in Canada for that so far. But we plan to increase that as well as the public transit data for additional cities in the near future. So Canadians can grab this now and hopefully others will be able to grab it soon. Is there a cost for the app? No, it's completely free. Uh, from the outset, when we started the project with government funding, our intent was always to make sure that it was available to the maximum number of the visually impaired and blind community for whom it could benefit without any uh, impediments in terms of cost uh, being a, being a uh, factor limiting their, their access to the technology. It is, however, at present only available for iOS, but we expect to have our Android port ready uh, in the next few months and deployed as well. I've seen a number of apps come and go that have been put together by academic institutions and there's a lot of initial interest and then funding dries up or they move on to other projects. Do we have any kind of guarantee that Otua is here to stay and will continue to receive development resources? Well, there are obviously no guarantees. And at present, we're actually uh, going to be burning the last of our funding that we have from the Canadian Internet Registry Association, who, to whom we're enormously indebted for giving us the funding that helped uh, bring this across Canada and really expand the app to make it something that we were ready to deploy at a large scale. Uh, but uh, since we can continue supporting the app, with almost no cost other than uh, the sort of small cloud storage and, uh, and computing resources. It's something that at least in its present form, uh, we would intend to keep around as long as possible. Uh, with, and that doesn't really require significant resources uh, on our end. But in terms of the added functionality, doing things like support to Android, adding additional cities, adding additional, additional functions, and we've received a lot of requests and really great ideas from our user community who have asked us for certain features, many of which were already in our pipeline. Uh, for that, we, we are certainly going to be seeking additional development funding and uh, going uh, looking at grants that are uh, suitable for this kind of work. I'm really looking forward to giving this a shot. It sounds like an intriguing and ingenious app, and our listeners in Canada can obviously grab it right now. If you have a uh, an account in the iTunes Canadian App Store, you'll be able to pick that up right now. I don't think you're limited to requiring a Canadian App Store account. I think anybody around the world uh, can download it. We certainly we've had uh, users in the states. We've had users in uh, Sweden uh, who have contacted us uh, talking about their experiences with it, how happy they are. But I just want to be clear that uh, for those users outside of Canada, they won't be deriving the full benefits of the app uh, until we add the additional data support for intersections and public transit data. Okay, understood. Well, then I will go and grab it right now. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast to tell us about it. It'll be great to see where this goes in future. And congratulations to you and the students for getting it to this point. It sounds like a well thought through and valuable tool that I think will benefit a lot of people. Thank you very much. Well, I certainly hope it does benefit, and the, the team who've been involved with it from the outset have uh, put in many, many cycles, not just on development, but a lot of work in terms of testing and uh, interviews and iterative feedback, working with the blind community to make sure that O'Toole really was something that met their needs. It was designed from the ground up, not as a fun technology project, 
but really something that was very much user-centered on that specific community to make their lives better. Hey, Jonathan. Yeah, Jonathan. Julie Andrews wouldn't help me record my promo, so I'm just going to have to do it myself. No, please don't. I've got no choice. No, don't do no. it. No, and stop talking to yourself. No fun anymore, Jonathan. Sundays are two here on Mushroom FM. Radio, radio, radio. What a way to conclude your weekend. Radio, radio, radio. Four hours of fun on the Mose and Explosion. Radio, radio, radio. Live in New Zealand with Jonathan. Radio, radio, radio. I like hearing the bananas and the funny wacky news. And the bulletin from Barney makes it a good show to choose. You'll be so glad it's the show you've chosen. Radio, radio, radio. Sundays are two for the most an explosion. Radio, radio, radio. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Well, since we've been talking about iPhones so much lately, let me conclude by saying that there is some exciting stuff going on in Google land at the moment, and hopefully we will be able to cover this in some more depth in a future edition of The Blind Side. Google has announced two new Pixel phones. That's what they're called, Google Pixel. And that includes a new thing called the Google Assistant. And you're going to be hearing about the Google Assistant quite a lot in the future. This is taking advantage of all of Google's intelligence, all of their smarts, all of their search. And even if you're a diehard iOS user, you probably will have noted that when you ask Google for things, when you do a Google voice search, it often comes back with very precise answers to questions. Whereas Siri will just say something like, I found something on the web. Google really have this organized. They, they're doing some great things. But there's also a feeling that Siri has a kind of a personality about it that Google has lacked. And I think with Google Assistant, they're trying to take care of that. There's also a new product called Google Home. And this has Google Assistant in it as well. It is a competitor to the Amazon Echo. It's cheaper, only $129, only available in the United States right now. And Google Home is intriguing to me. It sounds like it has a lot of cool features. It does a lot of the same things that Amazon Echo does, but it does some things differently. It has Chromecast support built in. So, for example, if you have one of those little Google Chromecast devices, be it the full Chromecast or Chromecast audio in your house, you can say, uh, play Mushroom FM on my TV and it will Chromecast it from your Google Home device to your TV. If you have an audio device, a Google Chromecast audio device plugged into your speakers, you can say, play Mushroom FM on my speakers or whatever you've called the Chromecast device and it will launch TuneIn on the Google Home device and blast it through your speakers thanks to Chromecast Audio. A lot of very interesting stuff coming out of Google, and it's nice to see that there's so much competition keeping things innovating and moving. We just also have to make sure that, of course, we have viable accessibility choices, and it's really great to see some very significant progress continuing to be made on the accessibility front with Google as well. So hopefully we will have an opportunity to cover that in subsequent editions of the podcast. But that's where we leave you for another week. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.